everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They are completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, off your order. If you say, no, this was not climate change, then, well, that's factually wrong. If you say, yes, this was climate change, that's also factually wrong. And yet, because climate change is so heavily politicized, we have you know multiple TV networks that are kind of all one or all the other. And so yeah. I, I hate seeing climate be a, a tug of war. Hey, everyone, it's Mo Shwanunu, and you're listening to another Mo News Conversation. As we continue to assess the damage from Hurricane Ian, the big question many of you have been asking is, what impact did climate change have on this particular hurricane and is having overall on hurricanes as well as larger weather events across the country. The media coverage seems all or nothing these days, that everything is climate change or nothing is climate change, and it is time to bring some nuance to this conversation. And so for this edition, I invited on meteorologist Matthew Capucci. He's doing some really incredible work. If you uh, are on Twitter, you should follow him over there. He was on the front lines last week, and we're going to talk about this as Ian made landfall in Florida and actually went through some pretty risky and tricky situations. We talk about a number of things in this episode, what his experience was like during Hurricane Ian, why meteorologists stand there on the front lines getting hammered by the storms, and what he thinks that brings to coverage and brings to the viewer. We also talked about how accurate the forecasts were. As you recall, in the days leading up, there was a lot of talk about it hitting Tampa and made a move south, and he will take us through the process by which they forecast these storms and how accurate he believes weather forecasting is getting these days. He has some great numbers on how much more accurate we are than just 20 years ago. So Capucci was inside the storm and he also tells us a story about how he was driving around inside the eye of the storm and gets two flat tires as the back wave of the eye starts coming on shore. He'll talk about that story and I will yell at him at certain points. And we talked to him about how he struggles with this whole idea of meteorologists standing on the front lines of these types of storms. Capucci's typically based in D.C. where he's an on-air meteorologist for Fox 5 D.C. He also produces a lot of content for the app My Radar. That's in addition to publishing daily articles for The Washington Post and appearances on NPR and the BBC. In this conversation, we talk about his three big lessons from Hurricane Ian. This is key for anyone living uh, in the Gulf of Mexico or along the East Coast. And what I think you guys will get the most out of is our conversation about the media and climate change what the media gets wrong, and what it gets right. He talks about some of the frustrating coverage he saw this week as some reporters decided to call everything climate change. And he's like, no, science is much more nuanced here. And it's time to bring nuanced conversations about science to what's happening with our weather. He takes us through what weather changes you are seeing in the Northeast, in the West Coast, in the Midwest, and in the South related to climate change, how it's impacting hurricanes, And also does a fact check on things that are just weather being weather. These are the types of conversations I try to bring you on the Mo News podcast, where we really try to break down what's happening out there and how the media can do a better job of explaining it to you. Before we get started, a reminder to follow or subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single edition. And also, if you could, I'd love if you could leave the show a review. Every review makes a difference and helps us grow and move up the ranks on all the apps. With that, here is this week's Mo News interview. Matthew Capucci has returned from the storm zone, uh, Hurricane Ian, and joins me now from Washington. 
Uh, Matt, I uh, so appreciate you uh, having this conversation about the storm and climate change. Yeah, most definitely. I, I got to say, it's good to be back with running water, Wi-Fi. You know, all my windows are intact, which wasn't necessarily the case during the storm. So it's good to be back. But my heart goes out to those who are still kind of struggling down there. Yeah, it's, it appears to be a years long uh, rebuilding effort uh, in looking back at uh, Hurricane Andrew. In some cases, it was more than a decade before certain areas got rebuilt uh, and redeveloped. I, I completely agree. You know, I think with this sort of storm, the magnitude and really how populous the area it struck worst was, I wouldn't be surprised if people use this as kind of a benchmark for time, either before Ian or after Ian, because it really is kind of a big inflection point in the, the narrative of, of those places as stories. You know, I've been following you on Twitter uh, in regards to the climate discussion, how climate's impacting weather. But before I get there, I want to talk to you about your experience covering Hurricane Ian uh, Matt, if you could take me through your experience during the storm, where you were, what your expectations were, uh, and the aftermath. Most definitely. So I, I wound up getting a text the night before the storm from one of my friends who said, hey, I heard you're chasing this. I'd love to team up. Where are you at right now? I said, I'm on Sarasota. Getting ready for the storm. Come on down. We can team up. You know, Stay here overnight, and then we'll kind of get going tomorrow morning. And it was his first storm, my friend Andrew. His first storm of this magnitude, and I've been in a Category 4 Laura before back in 2020, but I was in an armored vehicle on the far western side of the Iowa where we saw gusts peaking out around 111 miles an hour. But we were on exposed bridgetop last time, so I sort of knew what to expect this go around. I knew the surge would be much more of a problem this time than last time. And ultimately, like I, I tried to explain to him and, and really to my, my family too, who are anxiously watching me, that there's no routine way to go into a hurricane like this. When you're going into a high-end category three, category four, whatever, there's no nine to five. There's no, like, you don't get to clock out. Once you're in it, you're in it. You're off the grid. You can't be contacted. It, it's, it's rough. It, it's roughing it for a couple of days, and you hope that you maintain your safety and you take steps to mitigate any risk. But the next morning, we awoke about 4.35 in the morning to see that the storm had rapidly intensified overnight. Instead of being a high-end Cat 2, low-end Cat 3, was now a high-end Cat 4 flirting with Category 5 status, which... This right was... So, so just to uh, uh, level set here, this was Wednesday morning, just hours before yeah. landfall. Okay. Yeah, so Wednesday morning, we wake up, we see that, and everything on the models, everything, radar, satellite data just kind of gave me a, a pit in my stomach in that I was looking at it, I saw there was lightning enveloping the eye. And when you get that enveloped eye wall lightning signature, that shows it's still intensifying. And the eye was clearing out, which is a sign of, again, rapid intensification. A Hurricane Hunter plane had flown into the storm and was slammed down 1,200 feet by extreme turbulence. It's like a quarter mile just being pushed straight down. So I knew this was one that you don't really take any chances with unless you really know what you're doing. So that morning, we relocated from Sarasota down to Venice. We wound up going into a parking garage that was a, a three-tiered parking garage. It was cement. It was about a mile inland. I was feeling pretty good about that location in terms of escaping surge and or the worst wind impacts. The issue, it was out of the path of the eye. So with about three and a half hours to landfall and conditions really getting worse, we, we had probably gusts to about 70 miles an hour at that point. We relocated again to the town of Englewood, where we found a, a steel-reinforced hotel Looked pretty sturdy. We were about 10-ish feet above sea level, but I knew we'd be kind of out of the surge zone at that point because we we're in the northwest side where winds would be pulling water offshore. And we stayed there for about three-ish hours, and I said, no, we, we got to relocate again. Matthew, what was your goal here? When you talk about relocating, then relocating, relocating, what was your goal as a meteorologist What in terms of picking, I guess, this perfect location? So for me, the perfect location would be going through the first eyewall then getting into the eye, then getting the backside. Because when you do that, you go from absolute hell on earth to a weird oasis of calm inside the eye, and then you get the second edge of the eye wall. And so to me, I wanted to do kind of like a perfect bisection of the storm because that would also give viewers a, a good idea of the sort of the storm structure. And we can talk about everything that, that, you know, all the different phases of the storm. So we relocated east one more time to the town of Rotonda, to a place that was just enough above sea level that I knew we'd escape any surge. And we sat there for a little while. And we got the first eyewall and winds were gusting 100, 110 miles an hour. And it was pretty rough, but it wasn't that rough. And what I mean by that was you look around afterwards, there wasn't a ton of structural damage. We go down to Punta Gorda, we cross the bridge. And even during the storm, we still managed to cross the bridge safely. And I So you're driving during the storm as it's making landfall. 
you're like, do, we, we don't recommend this at home, folks, but you no, are we, driving we certainly don't. And, yeah. and even I ran some issues driving in the storm, but was it avoidable? You know, potentially, but you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. And, and like I said, there's no routine way to go into these storms. And so we crossed the bridge over to Punta Gorda and the water's all gone. So we had an anti-surge in Punta Gorda where the water was being pulled offshore, but that's the same point where the onshore winds farther south were just slamming Fort Myers Beach with like a 15-foot surge and just inundating the entire coastal, really, town. And so we're in Punta Gorda for a little while. The eye approaches. We get these weird mesovortices, so kind of kinks in the edge of the eye wall. Ears are popping, all this stuff. We go into the eye. The eye's not that bad. Like, it, it's nice and calm. Yeah, light winds was still cloudy, so we didn't get like a, a perfect eye. But then I was like, okay, you know, we're, we're pretty much done because ordinarily the backside of the eye wall isn't as bad as a first. It turns out though, what had happened was that dry air, sort of entraining into the storm, had eroded the first part of the eye wall, making it not as bad. So what I had seen was sort of the, the eroded eye wall. Then we got into the eye. So we were going back west to get back to Englewood, where Andrew's car was at that hotel we stopped at. And that's when things suddenly went to pieces. We were getting easy winds, 110, 120 miles an hour at times, and visibility was down to only about 15, 20 feet. So this was what a, a true eye wall should feel like. But I think because there was so much rainfall north and west of the center, that dragged down momentum from aloft and made the backs out of the eye wall way more powerful than, than the first side. So I knew we'd be kind of out of the surge zone, but we're driving west on this road. We only have about six or seven miles to go. And you know, it, it's hell on earth. You can't see anything. We're going at about 15, 20 miles an hour, but also trying to go quickly enough that we can escape any falling poles if that does pose an issue. And suddenly I look right, because I was so focused on white knuckling it on the road, I look right and there's water lapping at the roadway just to my right. And I look left and same exact thing. So we're only about six or seven inches above where the water is at that point. I don't know if it's surge or fresh water. And at the time I knew it was fresh water, but I didn't want to take the risk. So we start kind of zipping ahead, trying to get out of there rather quickly. Wait, just to distinguish for people at home, surge is the ocean water, yeah. the salt water, and then yep. when you refer to freshwater flooding, you're talking about rain. Exactly. So by that point, we'd had 15, almost 20 inches worth of rainfall, and the entire area was so flat that it just kind of stacked up and couldn't go anywhere. Surge, I would have been more concerned about because that comes from the ocean. Obviously, any sur any flooding is dangerous, but surge would kind of still keep creeping up over time and you know, it's creepy when you look left, look right, and you're just above the water and you can't really go anywhere. So we keep driving, road is suddenly flooded and you know, like two or three feet deep, we just can't get through it. Nor would I ever drive through flooded roadways. So we turn around and in doing so, a power line comes, uh, not a power line, a whatchamacallit, one of those light poles comes down and it, it takes out our front two tires. So now I'm like, okay, this is not ideal. <laughs> so we, we limp the vehicle back east again on the road that we had come in on. And of course, conditions are still kind of going to pieces. We get to a, a bridge and it's just above sea level. So I'm like, we'll stay here for a second. Wait, wait, wait. It takes out your front two tires or sorry, lands in front of your front two tires. You go around. Oh, it takes it. out the front two tires. So like I'm limping this thing farther east again. And oh, so you have two flats. You're driving on two flats. Yeah. Actually, well, two, two and a half flats. Matthew, I if I was your boss at, during my time at CBS News, I would <laughs> I'd be so mad at you right now. For taking yeah. these chances. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's one of those things where it's it's definitely not ideal. And you, you try to mitigate risk as much as you possibly can. And, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Would I have done it differently? Yes. Uh, had we known that – I mean, the back eye wall surprised a lot, a lot of people. Because the front yeah. eye wall, again, really wasn't that bad. So we, we got to a bridge, kind of recollected, continued farther east. And we stationed overnight underneath an apartment building that I knew was high enough above sea level that – you know, would escape the surge. Freshwater flooding shouldn't be too much of an issue there. And we just kind of hunkered down overnight because there was nothing we could do. And the apartment building beneath which we were parking lost its roof overnight. And a couple of people actually went to seek shelter in their vehicles. Next morning, I changed one of the flats. We went farther west again. I dropped Andrew off at his vehicle. He and I both made it back to the hotel and we were kind of good to go. But yeah, for, for a little while, it was tense. But you sort of expect these things during storms. You know, one of my colleagues... Uh, who was out reporting the storm, got hit by a, a tree limb that was flying through. An, a couple others wound up stuck in barrier islands. Uh, one actually got sucked down a drain and only survived because his life jacket got caught on something. And so I do think there are times when we need to be better about mitigating risk. Should I have mitigated a little more? Probably. It gets me to the core question, and I think a, a lot of people uh, are curious about this when they saw, in particular, I think one of the videos was out uh, 
during the storm of one of the Weather Channel correspondents nearly being taken out by a tree limb. Um, Why? Why do you do this? Why do the reporters put themselves um, in danger here? What what is the goal here, Matt, when you uh, when you head out into the middle of the storm? I agree. And and I think that's a key point in the conversation where, you know, we're doing the things we tell people not to do. And I don't like that, to be honest. I, I don't like gosh, it's it's such a tricky thing. On the one hand, we don't want to be bad role models for the people who we serve. And I feel like in many cases we are, I am, the, the weather channel, you know, everybody, we're, we're sort of going about it the wrong way. But on the other hand, we know that if we have pictures, if we have video with people that folks trust, i.e. us, the on-air talents out in the storm, people will take it much more seriously, not only this time, but next time too. It, so it, it, it's such a, a, a tricky thing. I think there's also a level of trust that comes from, you know, we, we watched so-and-so in studio building up the storm. Now they're in the storm. They're, they're there. They're, you know, they're with us for this. We're all kind of riding it out together. And I like that element of it. I think there's something distant about there being someone in, you know, a perfectly ironed suit in a studio somewhere or a perfectly pressed dress in a studio somewhere, you know, remaining in a, a well-lit place a thousand miles away from the storm, even if it's a network. So I, I like having people in the storm. I think I need to be more safe about how I do it. In general, we all need to be more safe about how we do it. But I think that will come when I you know, have a, a crew and sort of a, a one stream to broadcast to. Got it. Um, I want to talk about the forecast here because there's been a lot of discussion, even in the, in the most recent 24, 48 hours, about what Floridians should have known, what Florida authorities should have known, especially given just the scope of the storm uh, and the way that it changed trajectory, you know, should Lee County, should should they have known in Sanibel Island to get out uh, sooner? And authorities didn't make the call uh, to call for evacuation until about 24, just over 24 hours out from the storm. Talk to me um, meteorologically as you looked at the storm, as you watched it uh, make its way uh, through the Caribbean, up through Cuba, etc. Um, how challenging on the kind of realm of storms was this to forecast? Uh, what did Florida know, uh, the entire Western coastline, and when did they know it? Yeah, so about 72 hours out, we still thought the storm would track into the Big Bend of Florida as a Category 2 storm. Sorry, Big the, Bend being? Uh, Big Bend sort of being way north of Tampa, between Tampa and like north of Homosassa Springs, really in, in a very rural part of Florida where the peninsula kind of meets the panhandle, which would be sort of better case scenario. Then it, it started trending a little farther south and east, but Tampa, Tampa, Tampa was always the focus. Fort Myers was kind of on the edge of the cone. And the cone represents about two-thirds of the historical error from the National Hurricane Center at a given time frame, meaning about two-thirds of the time a hurricane would stay within the cone. It might wiggle a little outside on the left, a little outside on the right, about a third of the time. But realistically, the cone does a good job showing historical error from the National Hurricane Center. So if you're in the cone... You have a two, 66% chance of being impacted by the hurricane, of getting landfall direct impact by the hurricane. Is that a so way to not, say Not landfall directly. There's like a so, – so let's say the cone spreads out however far. There's about a two-thirds chance the hurricane will stay somewhere within that bound. And like a okay. one in three chance, it will kind of wander outside that. And so Fort Myers was on the very edge of the cone. Historically speaking, if you're in the edge of the cone, I don't want to say it's all right to let your guard down. But if I were there – I would not think that it was coming straight for me. I'd say, okay, I'm on the edge. I'm I'm almost in the clear. And that's public perception. The issue is that the cone stays the same size no matter what. In times when we're less confident, like this time, in my mind, it should be widened. And in times when we are sort of more certain, it should be made more narrow. But that wasn't sort of how we went about it. And that's not sort of policy for the National Hurricane Center. So our biggest source of uncertainty, actually, there were two of them. How strong the storm would be after Cuba? Would it be weakened? Would it continue to maintain strength after Cuba. And then secondly, whether or not a trough or a dip in the jet stream within which is nestled cool air, low pressure and spin over the lower 48 would capture Ian and sort of tug it east into the Florida peninsula, or if it could just kind of keep riding farther north and get weaker before it hits the Florida panhandle. We just didn't really know. And then about 48 hours out, things started shifting a little farther south of Tampa. And we were like, okay, this could be a little bit stronger. And then 24 hours out was really sort of that big, oh, shoot moment. It, it didn't weaken at all after Cuba. It was actually strengthening at that point. 
And it was rapidly intensifying. It was trending farther south. And with every model run, the models pushed it farther south and east. The National Hurricane Center sent it farther south and east. And it was set to make landfall nearer just north of Fort Myers. And that would put Fort Myers and, and Sanibel on the eastern side of the storm. And keep in mind, these things spin counterclockwise. So that would be the area with the onshore winds. Even the morning of, we were expecting like an 8 to 12 foot storm surge, which got hoisted to a, a 15 to 18 foot storm surge or 12 to 18 foot storm surge before landfall. And so things escalated quickly. Should Sanibel and Lee County have evacuated? Probably. The issue is confidence versus impact. In other words, if I'm very confident in a minimal impact, that's one thing. If I'm not very confident in a potentially catastrophic impact as what transpired, what do we do from there? Do we, do we kind of wait? Do we make a decision now and risk a, another false alarm. I don't envy the emergency managers at all. They have the toughest job out of all this. We as meteorologists kind of get to sit back and say, here's what we think will happen. But planning for this can be absolute hell. I think Lee County looked at the cone, saw that the cone had it going straight into Tampa and thought, okay, we're on the fringe. It won't be as bad here. And they were right until 24 hours out, at which point it was getting a little bit late to mobilize widespread efforts. Because keep in mind, you know, you can just say evacuate. That doesn't just mean everyone's going to get in their car and go away. You have elderly people who have mobility issues. You have the disabled. You have people who can't afford to evacuate. You have tons of procedures you have to implement, sometimes contraflow on the highways. It, it's a, a big thing that often takes 48 hours or more. And I think Lee County just realized they didn't have the time for that. Do I support the decision making they made? Probably not. Could they have done things differently? Yes. Hindsight's 2020. I think personal responsibility also plays a role in this too. If I'm on an island and I'm told to evacuate by the National Hurricane Center, regardless of what my local police department says, I'm getting out of there. Especially when I know that there's a good chance folks won't be able to reach me if there's an emergency or, or if there's whatever. So it's, it's a mixture of a, a not great forecast, uh, challenges of, of what's personal responsibility and what is not, and emergency managers making calls that may not have been the best options at the time. Right. I mean, it, it seemed like the everything north of uh, Lee County made the call on Monday, 48 hours out. Lee County waited till Tuesday morning, about 24 hours out, which for some people is enough time to leave. Some people, not so much. Depends on the roads. Depends on how clogged things get. Depend on whether you have pets or elderly or, you know, lack mobility. Yep. Um, what do you think made this particular forecast more complicated? Sometimes the hurricane center and meteorologists are spot on with their forecast, right? And you know, yep. days out and it hits exactly. And then sometimes, uh, you don't know, and things turn out to be better, which was the storm that went to the east of Florida and could have really ravaged the east coast of Florida, but, uh, ended yep. up staying slightly a few miles off coast. Hurricane Matthew back in 2016, and that one had been a category five when it hit Haiti and really just brought a catastrophic impact there. The issue with that one as well for the forecast in Eastern Florida, the eye wall, that donut of extreme winds right around the eye might've only been 30 miles wide. So if it barely skims the coastline, that's one thing. If it moves ashore, you get a world of de uh, destruction, devastation. In this case, we didn't know exactly where the eye would track. It was moving north, northeast, which is almost parallel to the west coast of Florida. Not quite parallel, but kind of that direction. So if the storm winds up trending, you know, let, let's say it goes two degrees farther north than we thought, just like you're, you're kind of, you know, leaning your arm or, or trying to shine a laser pointer at the coast, if you make a little deviation in movement at the start, that will lead to massive changes in where the storm ultimately goes, even 24, 48 hours out. And so that just made it so tricky to figure out where it would actually move ashore and where that eye wall would actually affect. The other thing too, uh, consider Tampa. Initially, we thought the eye was going just north of Tampa, which would put the southern eye wall with the onshore winds right over Tampa Bay, which would have been an absolute disaster for the generations uh, in Tampa. Instead, it shifted a little farther south, giving Tampa an offshore flow on the north side of the eye, which not only gave the minimal impact, actually drained much of Tampa Harbor, Tampa Bay. So, you know, we, we try to plan for the worst and hope for the best. In this case, the angle of attack, so to speak, that it was approaching the coastline at, coupled with the extreme rapid intensification that we just didn't foresee, played roles. 
Um, where are we in terms of accuracy of forecasting uh, and how much it's improved over the years, over the decades? How much more accurate are we now? I mean, obviously, there's a ways to go. But where are we? Um, like, are there terms that you guys use in terms of percentages, et cetera, of how much better hurricane forecasting is in 2022 versus, say, 2012, 2002, 1992, kind of every 10 years? So let me actually pull up a graph on that real quick. We nowadays in 2022 can issue a five-day forecast better than we issued a three-day forecast in 2004. So we're getting really good, actually, all things considered. The average error, if you go about five days out, is 150 miles, which, truth be told, I don't think is that bad. I think that's pretty good. That's average error, though. Obviously, there are circumstances when things are a little bit less certain. So I think we're getting really good in terms of track. And this time, all, all things considered, the National Hurricane Center did a decent job with the track. The fact that they could pinpoint that it was going to hit the west coast of Florida or the Big Bend somewhere over there, five to seven days out. I mean, we, we were writing this in the Washington Post articles. We were talking about this in the news. We knew it was going to be a Florida issue. We just didn't know exactly who Ground Zero would be. So we're pretty good at track. Intensity is something that we still are not as good at forecasting because of subtle fickle things like land interactions with Cuba, for example, or will it rapidly intensify or, or which will be sort of the dominant factor, the fuel available for rapid intensification or a change of wind speed direction with height that could disrupt the storm. Oftentimes, these storms are so capricious that they tend to want to do their own thing, evidenced by the fact that it was still intensifying as it came ashore, even though there were multiple ingredients to suggest it should have been trending downward a little bit. The Hurricane Center, I, I don't wanna say they played catch up because they, they were good about anticipating trends but they did so about six to 12 hours out rather than you know 24 to 48 hours out, which we sometimes can do. In this case, I thought they did a damn good job given the information they had available at the time. That's the key though, what's available at the time. What, I mean, we're not even done with hurricane season. What's the lesson uh, for anyone on the Gulf Coast or the Eastern Seaboard uh, as this hurricane season finishes, as they look at forecasts for upcoming storms? Well, how should they be looking at the cone? How should they be considering yeah. evacuations? What are the rules of thumb, especially as we try to learn the lessons of Ian? I think there are like two or three different lessons. Number one, expect the unexpected. Nowadays, you know, I used to be a pretty conservative forecaster in how I would expect things to unfold. Nowadays, I almost always take the over because it just seems like these things are rapidly intensifying much more than they did in the past. And it's true, like we're actually observing this. We, we know it's actually happening. But I tried to almost plan for a little bit worse because it seems like we oftentimes get surprised by things trending worse than they actually were. Even Michael coming ashore is a Category 5. I think of all the storms that have rapidly intensified right before hitting the coastline, kind of defying odds. Two years ago, I was in Gulf Shores, Alabama, waiting for Hurricane Sally, which we thought would come ashore as a high-end 1. and came ashore as a high-end 2, almost a 3, which is something that would lead to drastically more significant impacts. So that's lesson number one. I think lesson number two, we get so caught up on where that center line of the cone is that we forget that impacts oftentimes extend way beyond the cone. The cone only represents where that eye may track. Now, the worst surge is actually south of the center, not north of the center. So it's not necessarily where the eye is going ashore. The worst flooding can be well inland. You know, in this case, we didn't really see much flooding at all near or south of the eye. We saw the worst freshwater flooding north of the eye, even well far, hundreds of miles away in, in like northeast Florida. And, and we saw tornadoes far southeast of the center. So I think anytime someone is remotely near the cone, they need to expect impacts. They can't necessarily iron out five days out what impacts they'll get, but they need to know that. Surge, freshwater flooding, tornadoes, all are potential are potentials with, with the storm beyond just that risk of damaging winds in the middle of the hurricane. And I think ultimately, too, there is that level of personal responsibility. I think people these days hate making decisions on their own. And I see this all the time. Like people ask me for weather forecasts. I'll give them the forecast. Then they'll say, hey, you know, I have a baby shower at three o'clock. Should I move it indoors? Should I not? And I'm like, I, I've given you the information to make that decision on your own. I've given you my best guess, but I think people almost want to distance a bit from personal responsibility and personal decision-making by having someone who they deem is more qualified to make those decisions. In the case of emergency management, you, you have people who are trained to use information to make decisions. 
that doesn't always mean they make the best decisions, just as we don't always make the best forecasts. So you have multiple potential sources of, of issues between an imperfect, imperfect forecast, imperfect emergency management. So I think people need to know, like, if they don't feel safe, if their gut tells them to go, then go. If they live five feet, six feet above sea level, and they don't think that they're in a safe place, I don't care what officials say. Get out. You, you, you can do it. Sanibel Island, there's not a chance in hell I would ever be out on an island during a hurricane. That's why I wasn't out there, and I know hurricanes. I, I think a lot of Floridians know hurricanes too. So you know, it comes down to, to folks needing to do what they feel is safe, but also these days sort of planning for the worst and really hoping for the best. We live in a world of uncertainty, and yet we demand certainty with the technology that we have uh, and, and from people like you. So you've mentioned it a couple times, uh, and I want to get here in terms of the impact of climate um, on yep. our weather, uh, in particular rapid intensification. But I want to start with the basics uh, because yes. the word weather is thrown out, the word climate is thrown out. Explain the difference between weather and climate, and then talk to me about you know hurricanes are a weather event. How is the climate impacting them? Climate is your personality, weather is your mood. Climate is kind of what we expect and weather is what we get. So climate is based on 30-year historical norms, so 30-year average temperatures, 30-year average rainfall. So I can tell you, if you say, hey, I'm coming to D.C. in, in October or, or November or whatever, what will the weather be like? I'll say, I can't tell you what the specific forecast will be, but here's what we are like on average. Here's what kind of clothing you should dress for. Here's what you should bring. Should you bring a jacket? Should you bring shorts, flip-flops, whatever? So that's where climate comes in. Weather is obviously much more random. There's a lot of chaos, a lot of randomness that gets involved. But really, climate is kind of that, that smoothed out chaos, the averages of chaotic conditions. It's very rare to get a day that's perfectly average. So weather you know, tends to be irregular. When it comes to hurricanes, we know that in any given year, we might see, say, five or six hurricanes somewhere across the Atlantic and about 13 or 14 named storms in general. Of that, one or two might become major hurricanes, so category three plus. And the question always becomes, will they make landfall? You know, they, if they're fish storms, they don't bother anyone. These days, though, hurricanes, it, it seems like, are intensifying more quickly, are trending stronger, are trending wetter. And I think the media has really taken a focus on, can we tie this to climate change? Right. I saw some really bad climate journalism during and after the storm. I saw one TV reporter, won't say what channel, but one network reporter standing in the storm saying there's a 15-foot storm surge coming ashore. This is what the climate scientists warned of. And that that's very bad form for multiple reasons. I think it's it's bad form to attribute binarily, so yes or no, a single event to climate change. That said, we can look at data, we can look at historical observations and discuss how hurricanes are changing overall based on human influence. So we know that the air is a little bit warmer these days. For every degree Fahrenheit the air temperature warms, the air can hold about 4% more water. In hurricanes, that manifests in both heavier precipitation and a greater precipitation efficiency, so meaning more of that rainfall can reach the ground. And that can lead to storms that are 10, 15, 20% wetter and more rainfall. So we've seen that you know, with Harvey, Imelda, a couple other big flooding events in you know, Florence over the past five years and it's something that is not going away anytime soon. Because there's more water vapor in the air and sort of more juice for storms, combined with water temperatures getting a little warmer, we're raising the potential intensity, so to speak, or kind of that ceiling of how strong a storm can get. And subsequently, we're seeing the tendency for more higher end storms, category fours, category fives to form. We're also noting with the water temperatures, a greater uptick in the frequency of rapid intensification or a storm strengthening 35 miles per hour or more in terms of its strong winds in 24 hours or less. These are all things that we have firm links with. But so, not... so, so just to review here, yeah. the storms can dump more water, more rain, just because the atmosphere is warmer and the water is warmer. Yeah. Um, that's one. Two is the uh, rapid intensification, that they can go from zero to 60, so to speak, quicker. Yeah. Um, and the third, you kind of talked about kind of increasing the speed limit, like that on the stronger end, there's more potential for them to strengthen beyond the bounds that they yes. typically were in. So those are the three areas that climate scientists have been able to link to a certain extent uh, to where hurricanes are in 2022. Yeah, most definitely. Okay. 
What we don't have a link between, and actually there might even be a, a negative link, is the number of hurricanes per year. It's very consistent that globally we should have about 90 tropical cyclones annually. Some years, maybe 80, some years, 100, but roughly 90, give or take. This is in all and, oceans. All oceans, yeah. And we might actually see a decrease in the number of named storms overall over the years, which which would be rather interesting. So slightly fewer storms, roughly the same number or slightly fewer, but those that form should be markedly more intense going forward. So that's one link that I think many people often conflate. They think, oh, the, the world's getting warmer. There must be more storms. Actually, the opposite. The other thing, too, is that... Uh, storm size doesn't depend on climate change at all. Like it, we're not seeing bigger storms. We're not seeing wider storms. We're not seeing bigger footprints. Uh, and yet the media, everyone wants just a perfect yes or no answer these days. It, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier on. Should I cancel my baby shower? Yes or no. Was this hurricane climate change? Yes or no. The media really struggles with having nuanced conversations about science. And I think that alienates people. If you say, no, this was not climate change, well, that's factually wrong. If you say, yes, this was climate change, that's also factually wrong. And yet, because climate change is so heavily politicized, we have you know multiple TV networks that are kind of all one or all the other. And so yeah. I, I hate seeing climate be a, a tug of war, whereas this should not be a, a discussion, even for news anchors or for politicians. This should be a discussion that scientists lead. And we, we sort of, I don't want to say dominate the dialogue, but, but we, we sort of communicate the, the nuances in a way the public can understand. Yeah, there's also shades of gray here. Uh, and, it, and it seems like the, the framing, the discussion, the words that should be used are climate change increases the odds of X, decreases the odds yes. of X, as opposed to is this, is not this. Exactly. It's like if I'm, you know, say I want to get a slam dunk in the basketball court and I strap on six inch stilts so I'm taller. That slam dunk wasn't caused by me being taller, but it was made more likely by me being taller. But there are other elements of that slam dunk that you still had to practice. You still oh, had yeah. to go, yeah, right? It, it, so, not, so there's all these other factors. Good. There's the other team. There's uh, yeah. a, a whole bunch I, of stuff. Like when I saw this one news anchor go on there and say, you know, a 15 foot storm surge, this is climate change. I, I want to say no. Florida is the most hurricane prone state in the country. The end of September is the peak of hurricane season and the peak of when we see homegrown high-end hurricanes. A major hurricane will always cause a devastating storm surge somewhere if it makes landfall, especially if it makes landfall in arguably the most prone place for it to make landfall in this hemisphere. It, that was not climate change. That's weather doing weather things. The storm was made more likely by climate change but and the, the sort of the way it transpired but you know a, a storm surge is always going to accompany a major hurricane like that's that's how it works till the end of time it it's interesting because i i'm always curious about the state of the climate change communication i mean climate change is certainly something the earth is is undergoing right now at the same time there have been you know earth itself our planet uh, goes through climate fluctuations, right? I, I mean, I've been yeah. reading about how the Sahara, they believe, goes through a 20,000-year cycle where it goes from desert to uh, wetland based on the way that the Earth turns by a few degrees and how that impacts things. Anyway, they, there's these larger things at play. And I guess for, for people who want to get smart on these things, what, what are the sources they can turn to? What are the things they can say or, or learn about when it comes to um, how humans are impacting climate on a planet where climate does fluctuate? Honestly, I think the best advice, hmm, I shouldn't say advice. One of the things that I do, I read climate skeptic websites quite frequently. Obviously, I'm an atmospheric scientist. I, I sort of know climate change as best as we possibly can, given the things that we still don't know these days. But I read the climate skeptic websites because oftentimes there are points that can make me do my job better, can make me understand, you know, hey, here's this data point. This doesn't make sense. I think to be a good scientist, everybody should be a little bit skeptical. And I've gotten a lot of flack from this, from, uh, for, for this from both sides. But Matt Capucci, are you advocating climate <laughs> denialism? Yeah, yeah. I, I love when folks are like, you know, you don't talk climate enough. And then I get other people who are like, why are you talking climate in the morning news? And, and so I figure if I'm annoying or if I'm getting under the skin of both sides through the way I, I sort of hold steadfast to only communicating what we know and being very transparent about what we don't, that's the best route scientifically. But if both sides are a little bit irritated, that means I'm kind of hitting that sweet spot. No one wants to hear that, but but that's true. 
But in terms of what people can learn, I, I'd say the first thing they need to do is figure out how Earth has always changed. Learn about Milankovitch cycles or, or really, as you were referring, referring to earlier on, how subtleties in the periodicity and, and the, the shape and all these things, the, the tilt of Earth. Sorry, translate uh, periodicity. For the rest of uh, sort of how, how long it takes to, to orbit the sun like all these little variations in which way we face and and orbit can have huge bearings on, on the climate and we know there are these 60 80 120,000 year Milankovitch cycles we call them that influence this solar forcings sunspots do we have more sunspots so like bruises in the sun one year that mean we get a little bit more sunlight or a little bit less sunlight has the sun always been as bright as it is now are there you know, just, just so many different things like this that, or even with hurricanes, for example, we know there's like a 25 to 40 year cycle, or we think there is, that makes for more hurricanes or fewer hurricanes. We don't know much beyond that because we only have what, like a hundred years worth of good data, if that. And so there is a ton that we don't know. And I'd say starting off with the uncertainties and learning kind of how the, the climate exists outside of human influence, then we can build up to what are humans doing to sort of nudge Earth in one direction? What are the repercussions of that? The Earth, if we if humans disappeared tomorrow, the Earth would kind of be in what we call a state of homeostasis or sort of a temperate Earth that just exists as is. If we nudge it in one direction, though, as we're doing right now, it approaches what we call the hothouse stable state. In other words, the polar ice caps start to melt. You have less white, shiny stuff to reflect sunlight away. You have more water vapor in the air. Both those things absorb heat even more. And we kind of snow a spiral in, into getting hotter and staying hotter. And then it's very tough to escape the hothouse earth. Same thing with the planetary ice age. If you have a little bit more ice, a little bit more snow, that means more white to reflect sunlight away. That means a drier atmosphere. That means a cooler atmosphere. And we kind of keep reinforcing that. So earth has three stable states. We're in the middle right now. We're pushing towards Hut House, and human influence is kind of nudging that more quickly. So it, uh, it, it's a nuanced conversation, and nobody in media or really in politics these days wants to have a talk with nuance, and it, it's frustrating. Beyond the hurricane zone of this country, uh, where else are people feeling the effects of climate change where science, you know, climate scientists have been able to draw a link between climate and weather. Uh, what types of events am I experiencing in the, in the East, in the, in the West, uh, across the country right now that can be linked to climate change? Everywhere, and, and people hate that answer, but, but it's true. Like consider the Northeast, for example, we're seeing a 71% uptick in uh, flooding events in, in the Northeast, New England, New York City. You know, let's talk about uh, California, for example. On the other hand, we're seeing inveterate drought that's getting only worse and extreme fire behavior that's made worse by climate change. You know, 18 of the top 20 biggest fires on record in California have occurred, I think, in the past like 15 or 20 years. And we're seeing worse wildfires out there. And, and people ask all the time, how can two antithetical ideas, flooding and drought or fires, be related? And I mean, that's a huge source of, of climate denial. And there's a really simple explanation. It's a Clausius-Clapeyron relationship. What that means, it, it sounds kind of scary. Sorry, sorry, say that term again? Yeah, Clausius-Clapeyron relationship. It, it sounds- Clausius-Clapeyron relationship. Yep. It's a bunch of mumbo jumbo. It just basically means a warmer world is a wetter world. So as the earth warms, as the atmosphere warms, the air can hold more water. Where there's water available, like in the eastern U.S., you get heavier downpours. You get more rainfall, more cloud cover, whatever. Where water is not really available, like out in California, that warmer atmosphere just sucks more moisture out of the ground. It gets drier even more, so it can get hotter and kind of a self-reinforcing cycle. And so you get more extreme fire behavior out there, more fuels to burn. And even though they're antithetical, two opposites, they are two sides of the same coin. You know, interestingly enough, a tornado season over the U.S. Great Plains, I mean, like, when it comes to climate change, not everyone is like a loser from climate change. Some people are, are net benefiting. Like in, you know, the, the Plains, we're seeing a little bit less tornado activity over what was conventional tornado alley back in the 80s and 90s. You know, Oklahoma, Texas, Nebraska, Kansas, Colorado, whatever, slightly lesser tornado activity. The reason being, California's drought exacerbates high pressure out there, which causes the plains to heat up and dry out a little more than they used to. And so that arid dry area is pushing like 200 miles further east than it used to. So you get fewer tornadoes and fewer storms along the Interstate 35 corridor and arguably a, a bit of an uptick in the southeastern U.S., Alabama, Mississippi, a place where tornado vulnerability is even higher. Yeah, so the so, southeast has become the new tornado alley and the plains yep. 
But are the planes now, would you say they're net winners on tornadoes, but they're seeing more drought because of this? Yeah, more drought. I mean, they get tornadoes too. Like they're, if you're in Oklahoma, you still got to pay attention to tornadoes, but just a little bit less than in the past. But drought is a huge issue out there too. And, and we're seeing that grow with time. So, and there are a lot of things that we still don't understand with, with climate change, with local impacts. And I, I think to be a good climate communicator, we have to bring it down to a local level. If I have somebody on the fence in, let's say, Houston, who doesn't know what to believe, is sick of the media sort of spinning things in, in whichever way is convenient for them. And, and I say this as a member of the media, I, but I'm very transparent in my climate communication. I think that's why people seem to like me so far. But if someone's down there trying to make sense of climate change, if I'm showing, you know, Bob in Houston, a picture of a polar bear on an ice cap, he's probably never even seen a polar bear. Nonetheless, like, why would he care about one? As horrible as that sounds, he doesn't care if the ocean's getting two millimeters higher every year. He doesn't own beachfront property. He doesn't care that the temperature is warming a tenth of a degree Celsius every year. He doesn't know what Celsius is and nor can he feel a tenth of a degree. But if I explain to him that in Houston, a place where we're seeing rapid urbanization and, and sort of expansion of the urban footprint of, of cement and all that stuff. If I say, hey, since the 1970s, we've warmed about three and a half degrees Fahrenheit. That means we're seeing like 12% more rainfall every year, which, equivalent, which is the equivalent of like 49 extra days of rainfall annually. If you've seen flooding, we're seeing a, a doubling of flooding these days. Like, hey, have you noticed there's some some flooding? And everyone in Houston has a flooding story when you talk to them. So suddenly we can make that link and this abstract global thing becomes much more personally relevant, more tangible, more local. That's the conversation we have to have. And that's what the media is really struggling to, to do. Well, the media struggles in nuance. We, uh, we strive for simplicity um, yep. and it... And unfortunately, I think, Matt, it, it leads to that only reinforces the distrust people feel for the media in yeah. regards to because we try to oversimplify politics, try to oversimplify the economy, try to oversimplify, uh, you know, look yeah. what we did with COVID. I think we try to oversimplify everything. I, I really think we do. I think and, and this kind of comes back to how I am at, at my local station here in D.C. And, and I got to say, my boss is phenomenal in letting me sort of run with it as long as I can make big science accessible, it doesn't matter how complex it is. I can go on the air and say, hey, we're expecting, you know, whatever, baroclinicity today. But if I can sum up what that means in two sentences, it, we can communicate that. And I, I think that news and media in general is trying to compete with TikTok and trying to compete with like these short little vignettes where, you know, one's attention span doesn't have to be too long. And I think we're underestimating viewers. Viewers are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. And I think if we sort of elevated the intelligence of the conversations we have on TV, and if we elevated the, the type of stories, the, the news reports in general and how they go about it and added a little more depth and a little more nuance, it would serve this country well. I don't know if yeah. that's going to happen, but if, I mean, you're in news too. Your guess is as good as mine. Well, it's interesting because like, you know, you fall in this in this difficult situation of like, some people who want to talk about climate change as Armageddon, right? The world is going to end where yep. you know, the oceans are going to rise. Uh, you know, new new study out finds that Greenland, you know, all this ice under Greenland is going to melt. This piece of Antarctica is going to, you know, fall off and, you know, suddenly, you know, oceans will rise, you know, 10 feet, 20 feet, etc. So there's the impact of like Armageddon, the world is ending, which makes people be like, okay, so what should we do anyway? Then there's the other side of the coin, which is like, are we underplaying it? And so where do you find that middle ground? How do climate communicators, like who do you think is doing this well um, among climate science? Um, where can people turn to for that? Not to say that, you know, you should both sides everything. Well, you know, other people yeah. are saying, well, if 98% of people are saying something and 2% of people are saying the other thing, like yeah. probably you should go with 98%. But we, where do you fall on the, like the world is ending, Armageddon, everything's going to melt versus underplaying it to our own peril as well? Yeah. So I, I think you sort of exemplified what we've been facing for years. Yeah. And COVID exemplified this as well. I think with, with COVID, you had some people who are like, let's just do business as usual. This is a myth. And other people are like, I'm not leaving my house ever again. Some of those people and are still in their house. Some Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that was a microcosm for the issue that we're facing in climate in general. Obviously, taking an extreme approach to any issue 
is is bad. I mean, if someone said, I'm taking an extreme approach to dinner tonight, I'd be concerned not knowing what that means. <laughs> Being extreme with any, like I would not go out to dinner with that person. Like extreme approaches just don't work. In my mind, the conversation needs to stop being doom and gloom with climate change. It, it's not, you know, we got to stop showing pictures of things on fire. And, you know, I mean, obviously. It, well, even when things are literally on fire. But yeah, you know, what I, you're saying is that, like, yeah. drawing the it, line to every fire to climate. Exactly. Like, we're, we're just, we're, we're treating it like global Armageddon. The conversation needs to be less about doom and gloom and more about infrastructure, meaning conditions are evolving faster than our infrastructure is. 110 degrees isn't necessarily a bad thing on its own. In Phoenix, it's 100 degrees, 110 degrees like every day in the summer. And Phoenix is all right. Like people live there because their infrastructure is built for it. If Presque Isle, Maine or Seattle got to 110, you'd have thousands of people who die because they don't have the infrastructure for it. We saw that last year in Seattle when they hit 108, you know, Portland hit 109. It was a, a once in a, a thousand year or 10,000 year heat event up there. So the conversation needs to be about infrastructure. Honestly, I don't care whether or not people believe that, you know, we're causing climate change. I, I'd like them to be right and, and sort of believe that we're influencing the climate. But I don't really care because ultimately people are, are so caught up in bickering about whether or not it, it's us or if it's the solar cycle. Who gives a damn? It, it comes down to we it's need to. It's happening regardless. It, it's happening. Like fix the infrastructure. Why are we building? Like down. It, it frustrates me. People will build houses with stilts or houses on the water, three feet above sea level. And it, it's tragic every time their houses are impacted, but we're not building smart infrastructure. People will, I mean, will build new towns in California without evacuation routes for if there's a wildfire or we'll keep building the wildland urban interface or we'll build new neighborhoods in, in busy cities that don't have adequate drainage for a hundred year or a thousand year rain event. We're just not building smart. Because yeah, it was incredible to me. I was looking at uh, one story. They talked about the census records. The two fastest growing metro areas in the U.S. were the Villages uh, and Myrtle Beach. And then over that same period, population growth in Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, what do all these states have in common, exceeded the national average uh, by leaps and bounds. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, we, we keep building bigger targets and building in, in areas that, I mean, heck, like we can live there. It's fine to live on the coast in Florida if you build smart. And when I was in Fort Myers the other day after the hurricane, I met a lot of people who built really smart. Lee County has strengthened their building codes post Charlie. And there were a lot of people who only lost their garage because their homes were up on pylons. That's what smart climate building might look like. And that's what the conversation needs to be. But it's so heavily politicized, I don't think we'll, we'll get there anytime soon. I want to thank Matthew Capucci for joining me again. A reminder that you can catch his coverage on his Twitter account. It's just at Matthew Capucci, two P's, two C's. You can also see his coverage on the My Radar app. And he publishes daily on the Washington Post page and also appears on Fox 5 DC if you live in the Washington area. I want your feedback on this podcast. Please email me your thoughts, podcast at mo.news. Also a reminder to subscribe to the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com and follow me on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. And don't forget to follow the show and leave us a review in the App Store. Every review helps, and I really appreciate all of you continue to support this podcast and help us grow. I'll see everyone back here for the next daily edition.